Hey everyone, and welcome to the Skullcast, the premier podcast about Berserk from the community at SkullKnight.net. I am your eternal host, Walter, and joining me today is a full crew, including Azil. Hey everyone. Grail. Hello. And Griffith. Hey, hey. Thanks for joining us again. We are assembled here today to talk about volume 26, part one. Uh, it is a hefty volume. Uh, with lots going on. I always say Berserk is a very densely told series, and this is one that's just every little episode is just packed, jam-packed with stuff moving. So we will get into that um, shortly. Uh, a little bit of news. Uh, they have announced on Twitter that they're going to they're going to expand the Big Berserk exhibition, which uh, begins this September, with a new area that's going to feature a reproduction of Mira's workspace, along with sketches from some of his works and a video interview that he had recorded at the end of 2020. Um, there's no more details than that right now, but stay tuned. Uh, so I do know that there is at least one or two people on our forum that have said that they are going to go, or they either have or are actively trying to get tickets, and they live in Japan. So I would expect some kind of review along with pictures, if possible, if that's a feasibility. Of the, of the event once we get rolling with that in September. So that's something to look forward to uh, for those of us that can't go because of the obvious landlocked nature of things right now. But that's about it. Is there anything, any other news I might have missed? It's been kind of quiet, obviously, on the Berserk front. No, not really. I mean, there's the exhibition and little else. Yeah. I guess I just wonder about the exhibition. I mean, uh, right now, the Olympics very famously not popular uh, because of the pandemic situation in Japan. I just hope uh, things will be better by then. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, like we said, like we said at the beginning when they announced it, uh, I mean, it was very surprising they would do an exhibition given the pandemic. I feel like maybe it had been in the works for a while and they couldn't just cancel it or something like that. Maybe they thought in the spirit of Conrad, it's like the perfect time for a berserk exhibition. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I feel like they were probably over-optimistic about it. Yeah. And now, given uh, that uh, Mira passed away, uh, I mean, they can't not have the exhibition now, right? Yeah, it's it's morphed into something else. It's, like, more important. So, yeah, it's uh, and yeah, they've got this new uh, title for it uh, about how it's uh, 32 years of his work, uh, you know, walking in his footsteps. Uh, that's that's what they say. So it's uh, yeah, but uh, clearly uh, even now it's not guaranteed for sure that it will it will happen. Uh, it might be cancelled or reported again if the you know epidemic gets too bad in Japan. It's possible. Yeah, I, I didn't know about the new title. Uh, Thirty-two years. It's I, I feel like sort of an aggrieved ex-girlfriend when I cross my arms and go, mm-hmm, 32 years. At least you're acknowledging that it's two years late. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all. That's all I feel about that. <laughs> um, volume 26. Uh, let's go ahead and get started with it. Uh, it's place in the series. I wanted to start with where it fits overall, the context of 26, where it lands, what it means moving forward. I feel like it's about setting the stakes for guts and everyone moving forward. Uh, so, uh, along with the dangers that Volume 26 introduces, which is that the troll issue was larger than they expected once they get to the cliff off, we also come face-to-face with you know a God Hand member 
and Guts gets uh, a massive upgrade with the uh, Berserk armor in this, all in, all in one big volume. So I feel like Mira's changing the is changing the playing field of all the different elements that are in play from what they what they once were upping the stakes um but he's he's very careful to balance what was introduced in volumes 24 and 25 with magic with the core of berserk you know the god hand and the apostles showing how they're absolutely still threats if not you know more dangerous than they were before so that's to me where it all fits together um one little small interesting thing about this reread is that half of the volume is like perfectly sliced. The, the volume can be perfectly sliced in half. You know, it ends with the end of the Cliff Auth stuff. And then the, the next half of it begins with Flora working on the armor, which leads to everything that happens at the mansion. So it's just, it's nice that it has a nice ending point there with our half point. It's a big turning point. I mean, for me, this is the, the, the Berserker Armor volume to go with the title of uh, the Table of Contents name in the official Dark Horse translation, the Armor of the Berserk, or the Berserk's Armor, however one prefers. But to me, this is like, this is the volume where Guts gets his armor. But before that, I think it's more significant from like sort of a characterization standpoint with where we're going to end in the Companions episode, because... It's just this great moment that sort of contextualizes, you know, the past and the present, you know, and going forward, what we're, you know, who, who this group is, who they are to guts, how we're supposed to view it. And it's a really great moment. So that, that's, that's sort of the character moment that stands out to me. But overall, this volume is like, oh, this is like the beginning of the, the Berserk's armor era, too. Yeah, I would say it's a, it marks an inflection point for the story. With the Millennium Falcon arc, we get that opening up, uh, expanding, not just Guts and Puck anymore, fighting apostles in dark places, but getting companions again. Kind of the beginning of them, of Guts bouncing back from the events of the Eclipse instead of being uh, in a spiral towards annihilation. And, uh, and this marks an inflection point because, like you say, right after the Michiroke, who is a very important member of the group, they have an encounter with Slan, who reminds, serves to remind us both that the members of the Godan are extremely powerful. But the Guts can also, he can contend with them. It establishes that. Yep, exactly. That he's not as powerless as he used to be. Uh, the experience he gained during the Black Soulsman era actually serves a purpose because his sword now has gained, uh, even if slightly so, an ability to, to do them harm. Um, and it also foreshadows uh, what's going to happen when she says that uh, with the appearance of uh, Femto, the wars have started to merge. So it's a, you know, we, we get a bit of that uh, before, but it kind of uh, reiterates the fact that something's coming. The world is going to change uh, as they set their plan into motion. Uh, and of course, we've got the, the Berserk Salmor that is uh, like uh, another piece of the puzzle as far as Guts being able to uh, contend with these new challenges that would be uh, ahead of him. Uh, Grail, anything? It's hard to find something to add beyond what you guys said. I feel like you guys said it all. I, I really enjoy this volume because it feels like a culmination of what we've been going through since, uh, I guess, volume 21 or 22, where you kind of see the beginnings of the group forming and that dynamic forming. And with companions, you really see the acknowledgement 
which I thought was really cool of how Guts is beginning to see them as really, you know, people in his life that he can trust. So I thought that was great. It, it helped establish for a certain segment of the audience. They shouldn't just be waiting for them, these new characters to die and go away. Right. They're in it for the long haul. Exactly. So that Guts and Puck can go back to fighting skeletons and swamps. <laughs> right, right. And and really, it's been it's been in the works for, for many volumes at this point. You know, uh, I don't know how far ahead readers could tell that things were kind of moving in this direction, but it really feels like, all right, this is this is the real deal, guys. Yeah, I think the fact Guts uh, realizes him, himself that it's a case... He's also Mura ringing a bell saying, hey, guys, uh, have you noticed? Yeah. Uh, yeah. For the right. guys maybe, in the back who didn't notice. <laughs> yeah, maybe Guts himself was wondering when he was going to get back to that swamp. <laughs> well, yeah, I, it's, I, a, I don't, it's appropriate that he acknowledge, Guts acknowledges them along with the readers. I think that's a good point. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. just a matter of convenience for everyone, you know, anymore. Hmm. Uh, over to the cover of the volume. Uh, this is the one where Guts looks like he's uh, mid-sequence in action with a close-up shot of just his head looking down. Or it looks like he's probably swinging the Dragon Slayer, obviously, but can't really see anything about it. I do like it because it's so emotive. It's a very intense cover with that blood, uh, what do you call that, splatter, I guess it is. But it's only like I'm seeing, you know, a fraction of this painting. I would love to see the full one. It, it looks like it's probably part of a... a um, a larger piece that was zoomed in on basically, but I, I could be wrong. And um, thematically it's kind of perfect for what we were talking about because I mean, guts bleeding out is kind of a central, <laughs> you know, part of this uh, volume. Mm -hmm. Well, he gets pushed to his limits twice in this volume yeah. against Slan and against Grunbeld it's in the same volume. So yeah, it makes it's you're right. Thematically appropriate. Yeah. I don't think, I'm not sure it's part of a larger uh, piece, but uh, I do like this uh, cover a lot. I just think it's one of the better ones uh, that we got over the years. Mm -hmm. The only reason I would say it, it looks like, because it's obviously tightly cropped, and you could say that's part of the design, but it's just the strokes, not the strokes, the, the, the lines themselves are, are thicker than normal. That's why I would, I would say that. Of course, that could have just been the brush that he used. Yeah. Could go either way. As far I'm not, I'm not sure. I've never seen any inkling of the full paint. If we had an art no book, idea. we would know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only. Yeah. On to the inside posters. Uh, the first inside poster, I suppose, is uh, the Berserk Armor one. Uh, a very violent, red-looking uh, version of the Berserk Armor. Uh, with the beast aspect uh, in inhabiting the armor at the time. It almost uh, is like, a, you know, almost a beast armor version of the cover. Like, you know, you could mm -hmm. almost, if you yeah. plugged it in there the right way, it would almost translate perfectly. But of course, it would be a spoiler, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has a similar blood splatter thing happening uh, with it. Uh, and, and yeah, it looks very intense, obviously. Uh, it, I imagine seeing that as their first exposure to the Berserk Armor would be kind of terrifying without seeing it in the context of it, you know? What is, it would be like, what is this thing Guts is fighting now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is this futuristic thing, uh, looking thing? Yeah. Especially uh, they, since he's basically bleeding to death inside of it. Right. This next poster is kind of funny. It's a whimsical little scene, uh, obviously, as they're traveling. It tells a story. Between, yeah, totally. It tells a whole sequence of events. 
it's like a little mini episode of the manga if you really pay attention to what's happening. So it looks to me like as Sinjiro and Puck are walking away with the stolen apples from the one behind her, like those the the rear basket that they stole. But then Casca put one in her mouth, which gave away the whole theft. Well, so Sinjiro is also just losing them. They're trying. He's like his pockets are so full. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. But it looks like Serpico's on cleanup duty, like trying to like smooth it over by yeah. her maybe a little bit extra. <laughs> and poor Shirke there too, holding apples in her hat, looking. The very look on Shirke's face. This like, I don't even know you know, trying to calm things down. And then the, the other story, the sort of subplot here, is Guts looks you know horrible. <laughs> this is sort of you know one of the early indicators of like the toll of the armor. He looks like Count Dracula or something. He's mm. just so pale. Even yeah. it's a it's a lighter painting, but just the compared to the tone of everyone else. Well, he looks also preoccupied and, and kind of world weary. He's, yeah, he's kind of bemused to, by all this. Yeah, well, he's he's just not even associated with with the whole scene. Basically, he's looking. He's not even looking at the action. He's looking somewhere else. You know, so he <laughs> looks uh, kind of disturbingly preoccupied uh, apart yeah. from the whole scene. Pensive, I would say. Yeah. But yeah, what's interesting is that uh, this poster shows up something that happens after after the volume. Right. So I find that interesting. The fact it's a little window into the future since we already see Guts, I mean, with his white, uh, you know, tuft of hair uh, with the uh, Berserk armor on. So you end up the volume... Uh, you still don't know about these developments, for example. So that, that's uh, that's interesting. This is, yeah, presumably them on the way to the beach. Yeah, that's a good point. There's a nice little series of these, isn't there? Yeah. I, I like the series where it's just like little little shots of their daily life on their way to Vertanis or on their way to the beach. <laughs> yeah, there's. I'm, I'm glad we got those um, while we could, while things are still... While the group's all still together and traveling on human-centric worlds before we, you know, never get to see that stuff again. Um, I'll take the first episode, uh, which is Retribution. It starts with uh, Farnese screaming at just seeing, having seen, you know, Hannah's body uh, erupt with trolls from the middle of it. Uh, it draws the attention of the trolls. Shirke and Guts rush to save them, but they're separated by another large group of trolls. Shirke uses odd manipulation to distract the group, and they are able to slip by. In the meantime, Farnese has to fight to protect Casca, and in the process, finds find strength. Guts is able to save the day, blasting the incoming trolls with his crossbow. And Shirke realizes there are even more trolls than they realized, and uh, escaping with the surviving Enoch women and children won't be easy. Guts says he'll take care of them while they plan their retreat. He gives Isidro elf powder and says he's in charge of the rear guard, just like Guts was in his first big battle. That's the summary. I do have a few highlights. Uh, the first thing I'll say is I didn't notice until this reread that the the title of this episode and the following episode use the same kanji, uh, and it's pronounced differently based on the different usage. So there's basically a parallel between redemption and retribution. So it's it relates back to what Farnese says in this episode. She says basically she's arguing with herself over whether this dangerous scenario she's in where her life is at stake. Is this her retribution for having been such a terrible person and persecuted so many? Uh, and then, or is it, is having Casca here to protect her, her, her redemption uh, from that, that life she led. But anyway, it uses the same kanji, which first is Mukui. And I think the next one is Fukui, 
But uh, anyway, it's, 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 it's interesting that Miura used the same word that, with the double meaning of it uh, in the same kind of thing that Fornese is talking about. Uh, I really like the two-page spread of Casca and Farnese when they're surrounded by trolls. It's one of the first things you see in this episode, third page or so, uh, because it does what Azil talked about in the past few episodes, where depending on who is viewing them, the trolls can look either menacing or kind of comical. And obviously, when they're surrounded like this, they're the the picture, the two-page spread is kind of framed by their open mouths and their t- tongues lagging out and the fog kind of coming out. It just, you know, exudes fear, uh, which is really interesting that... Mira made a stylistic uh, depiction of this in this moment. Uh, Farnese wants to cower, but we see her, and we see her again under the covers uh, in her family's manor with her rabbit. Back to that scene, and not Britannus, their family manor, whatever, wherever that is. The Holy City, that's where it is. Uh, but now it's different because she has something to protect. She says, as, as the, she's the first thing weaker than, I, than me that I've ever been entrusted with. So being powerless and worthless is no longer an option. Her back is to the wall, literally. And she has to fight for something to protect. Uh, I also like Farnese swooning and then gripping guts with this kind of embarrassed look on her face. Uh, and lo- looks like she's like, it's kind of like a private reflection. That look, I don't think is meant for anyone else but herself when it zooms in on her like that. It's like she's realizing these feelings are there uh, for maybe one of the first times. Yeah. I wondered about that one. Um the last little highlight I have about this one opening sequence is when Guts arrives and shoots his crossbow, there's a little detail where you can see his foot is stomping down when he's first firing, which means it was really, really tight, the timing there. He was running running while firing uh, that first volley, so he just made it in time. I thought that was neat, a little emphasis on the timing of it all. Um this whole episode is really, to me, it's not only about a moment for Casca, I'm sorry, to, for Farnese to shine, but it's also about the introduction of the Enoch villagers who, they weren't part of this rescue mission initially. They went in for Farnese and Casca and they were going to jet, but now they have a pretty sizable group of unarmed women and children to defend and, and, and get out of there as well. So that changes the stakes here. And there are also many more trolls than than they had assumed, You know, far more as Shirke says, then we're there at Enoch. So it's a much different ball game when they arrived than when they had uh, planned on their little uh, incident here. Mm. That's one thing about volume 26 is reading it again. I was like, God, there's so many damn trolls in this. Yeah. They keep coming too, out of the walls. <laughs> it's like yeah. uh, right out of aliens. I mean, really they're going into, it's basically like the rescue at the end, except here mm-hmm. it's like rescuing all the colonists too. If you, if it were possible. And as Walter pointed out, the the trolls are sort of their maximum sort of disgustingness and threateningness is, you know, like, you know, Mira really sort of reintroduces them in that scene where you see them in, like, the same page, they're eating entrails, wearing human skulls around their neck, there's dead children's heads on spikes, and they're just raping all the villagers, and it's like, well, okay, these guys aren't funny anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. Damn. Yeah, pretty much. It's uh, the den of the beasts. Yeah. The last little bit I had was about Isidro, of course, because Isidro's been waiting for a moment to shine ever since uh, the Enoch village uh, battle. He didn't feel like he had his moment, and, and Guts sets him up right here. You know, he's, he tells him how to use the, um, the what do you call them, the spike bombs? I can't remember. Yeah, the grenades, names. yeah. Grenades, thanks. And, you know, he says, he's giving you the, I'm giving you the job because you're up for it. You know, prove to me, prove me I'm right. Prove me right, basically. 
So Isidro, you know, he has this genuine moment where he's really inspired and then he kind of masks it with his little smirk and says, I'll do it. You know, you goddamn grown up, he says, as he walks away incensed. Yeah. yeah and then Guts uh, gets to start. There's also some, say, oh, go ahead, Dennis. No, it's just, it's interesting that Guts' boss um, reaffirms to Farnley that she, she's useful. She's not a dead weight and, you know, she, she matters. Then he does the same to Isidro. Uh, and at the same time, he also very confidently says he'll deal with the trolls. And we see Shiruke doubting that. And, you know, Lee, like she wants to retort or something like that, but she just shuts up and does uh, what he asks of her. So it's interesting to have that uh, further confrontation after what we got in the village of uh, the reality of God's prowess in battle versus what Shiruke knows of the world through books and what she thinks the limits of a human horror uh, versus what God's can actually do. Well, and it's great because they're all in these different places where Shiruke, she still, she hasn't bought in yet. Like, you know, Guts is coaching. He's, you know, we're seeing his charisma. We're seeing how it's affecting everybody. You know, Shirke is uh, not, uh, Farnese is literally in tears because Guts, you know, expresses his gratitude, you know, for like, sort of her importance to the group and protecting Casca. And Shirke's reaction is like, literally in the translation, and Targo says, they're all fools for him in the end, <laughs> you know? And it's like, that's You'll such get a there, great, lady. So, yeah, you Just know? you wait, Shirke. <laughs> like, you're next, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> Also, yeah, that's like, true. Guts, it's not like the trolls are even a big deal. She's she's shocked that Guts says he'll take him on. But, you know, he accomplishes his mission basically by the end of the next episode. And then Slan comes, which disrupts the whole thing. So it's not yeah. like he, he wasn't up to the task. It, it wasn't even well, really a big deal. And at the time, I remember people were complaining in, in, this vol- in this volume, in the previous one in particular, about Guts almost like showing off. Like, it was like, oh, you know, he's invincible now, and, you know, there's no there's no tension here, there's no stakes. And, you know, this is one of, like, the last episodes where there's some real great guts, like, heroism shots, where he just, like, he literally, when he first kills the trolls with the, you know, his uh, cannon, and the, the or the bowgun, I should say, and he's, like, reloading it, he's got them all between his fingers, and he's standing next to Farnese and Casca, uh, and he just looks... totally awesome (laughs) you know like Mm -hmm. reloading the gun and standing there like superman and obviously he's gonna you know after the next couple of episodes he's gonna be physically compromised pretty much uh going forward so yeah it's it's just interesting how that ebbs and flows from him almost like you know being more than a match for these guys to Mm -hmm. finding himself in over his head again That's a good point, Griffith, because it seems like Mira himself was like, okay, how do I keep the tension uh, high for Guts? And I think that introducing the Berserk's armor. Yeah, it shows that he's reached a certain point of like prowess, you know, and then it's like, okay, so how do we level things up and sort of, uh, you know, where he needs that just to hang on? Yeah. Mm, It's interesting because. I see the trolls in the the fight against the trolls in the layers. Like you said, it's just a way to show that gut is super cool. Uh, basically, we saw him fight apostles and he struggled at the time and so on. And now two years later, uh, it's a way to show what he can do. Where yeah. uh, these trolls, sure, they're ferocious and stuff like that, but they're not smart and they're not particularly... Uh, 
strong or anything like that. So against normal humans, there are danger, but Guts, uh, when he was a teenager in the golden age, he killed a hundred men, uh, professional fighters with armors and weapons and stuff like that who fought with coordination. So to see, to show him like just butchering these trolls is also a way to show that, yeah, he's fucking cool. <laughs> he's fucking strong. And then you, uh, up the ante by having Slan appear and she's like, like beyond, it's not even another level, it's another plane of existence. And that, that, yeah, it's just a, a, a full fist slamming in his face. And of course, later on, we, we get Grunbelt. What I find interesting about that, I get a bit ahead of myself uh, with this, but Mura could have chosen to show Guts fighting, uh, just as a black swordsman, not wounded, not needing the armor against Grunbelt. And I feel like he made a deliberate choice to, have him be seriously wounded, getting his apps, uh, his ass uh, handed to him by Grand Belt, then having to use the armor and reversing the situation. So it's a it's an interesting way to to develop things. Well, also, I mean, in my mind, it also it insinuated to me that like if Guts hadn't have been injured, you know, if he hadn't have been hurt by Slan. I don't think it would have, you know, we didn't, Grunveld didn't get to see the real guts, you know, not either, in either case, you know, he, we didn't get that measure of him, but in my mind, it's like, oh, if guts had been okay, this wouldn't have been, uh, you know, I'm sure Grunveld would have still been a, you know, a challenge. It wouldn't have been nothing, but I think he would have, uh, taken care of business. That's my assumption. I mean, it doesn't really matter, but. <laughs> Uh, he probably could have defeated him in his yeah. uh, human form, but uh, yeah, the real question is, could he have gotten through to the Crystal Dragon? Uh, yeah, when he wouldn't have had the ability to like slam his entire body into him, you know, and break yeah, all his bones. Yeah, he, he wouldn't have been able to break all of his yeah, bones. Yeah, he couldn't have done I think, that. I think Miura like, considered all these things, and I think that's partly why the Astral Wound exists, is to make it that Guts had zero choice. You know, whether he was uh, wounded from that fight in a, in a physical way, or not, you know, his and even even when it. he was like in that situation, he was still doing the whole "oh, it's nothing" <laughs> routine. Mm-hmm. But the absolute yeah. wound is something that he absolutely requires a crutch now uh, because of that. So it, there's no question about it. Uh, Grail, I'll pass it to you for the next one. All right. Well, with the la- last episode, we were just starting with the guts versus troll battle, and this episode. Salvation opens as Guts begins to fire volleys of arrows to the horde of trolls with his crossbow and blasts them with their with his arm cannon. But they're soon replaced by more trolls. Uh, big surprise there. More trolls. <laughs> Guts comments that it's the first hundred man or rather hundred beast kill he's had in a while and pulls out the Dragon Slayer for some serious troll extermination. Meanwhile, Shirke leads the way while she, the group, and the kidnapped women and children of Enoch move to escape the Gleefoth. They are suddenly ambushed by a troll, but Isidro jumps into action with uh, one of the explosive mini-bombs. His quick work and exceptional aim surprises Shirke and Evalera. Isidro reminds himself that Guts entrusted him to do this job and once again successfully dispatches trolls with his bombs. As they continue their escape, Casca trips and Farnese stops to help her and fights off another monstrous resident of the Clefoth, a creature with spider legs, a giant eye, and of course, a stinger. Farnese quickly kills off the creature with her silver dagger, and when Isidro asks what's wrong, she doesn't reveal what happened. 
Farnese reflects on how Casca's presence gives her the strength to do things she wasn't able to do before. Cutting back to Guts and the trolls, body parts are flying as Guts cuts through swaths of the creatures with the Dragon Slayer. While he swings his sword, he considers how this is the first time in a while that he's been able to do battle without worrying about those around him. Cutting back to Shirke, she stops the group as they sense two groups of, as she senses two groups of trolls moving to, towards them for another ambush. Isidro asks if Shirke can redirect their attention like before, but she explains that it won't be possible, and they'll need to push through by force. However, just as she says that, she senses the awe of a mysterious figure whose figure she can't as uh, she isn't able to visualize the figure of someone on horseback before she's even to explain its presence it rushes through the trolls with an incredible speed so fast its presence leaves only a gust of wind and a pile of dead trolls in its wake back with guts we see a similar pile of dead trolls as he appears lost in, in a bloodlust recalling his time as the black swordsman as he removes a bit of a troll's weapon from his arm he appears ready to rejoin the group and Cleefoth. However, a ripple appears in a puddle of troll's blood with mysterious tentacles floating somewhere below. Uh, so, dun dun dun. Uh, I, I love this episode partially because I, I was excited to get my episode too because I feel like this is like a colorist uh, favorite. You know, I see so many, <laughs> I see so many color versions of these panels across the internet over the years that it's uh, fun to reread and you know, uh, see some of these iconic shots in context again, and uh, a lot of a lot of desktop wallpapers were made in this episode. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> iconic guts uh, shots. Him like spinning around with the dragon slayer, which is also like a total retro shot. Like it looks like black swordsman like era. Like it's yeah. it's great. And the same thing at the end when he's clearly sort of exhausted and covered in blood. You know, that's another famous one where it's that close up on his face covered in blood and he looks absolutely wild yeah mm. yeah it was great it was great to read that again the two-page shot right after that iconic one of the um when he's spinning uh the two-page shot it looks like a frisetta painting with the, the way the oh, action's yeah. framed where the guts is kind of at the pinnacle of this mountain of course Half basically of the trolls are trying to escape and still getting hit yeah. you know the ones and on the outer rim yeah. There's so much detail here. You know, Mira does this often where he freezes the action. You know, obviously things are in motion, but everything's captured in like a frozen moment of detail. Like all their expressions <laughs> are, are vivid there. Uh, yeah, the, the so ones big. running away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the ones beyond them turning around, they're like, ah! <laughs> uh, one he looks one like, scene I actually oh. forgot about in this episode, sorry to cut, it's just that I like the the part with Farnese and Casca also, because it, it was sort of a, a a frame away from the whole troll and guts action. It really the stuff with Shirke and Farnese and all that stuff really uh, kind of paced the action really nicely. Yeah, I think it's important that she got to do that herself, and she kind of you know what's the word psyched herself up in this previous episode, and this yeah. one she actually does it. She does the deed. She you know is able to kill one, and then. She just takes care of business without drawing attention, you know. Isidro's like, what's wrong? She's no nothing. You know, she doesn't even say, I got one. You know, yeah. She just does it. No bragging rights. Yeah. She just, <laughs> she's mm. going on. She, yeah. can, she acts like she's been there before. <laughs> yeah. uh, my few highlights for this episode, other than everything that Grail said about the visuals here, uh, I like that Mira thought, 
I have to depict Guts killing lots of trolls. What's an interesting way I can do that? I know. First-person shooter. So we have this yeah. two-page shot where <laughs> you see from perspective of Guts' uh, crossbow and uh, is that our other, I'm cranking the crossbow. This is the moment one of a it kind crosses over with Doom. Uh, yeah, it's a one-of-a-kind Yeah, of a very kind Doom. Shot. Yeah, That's it's, a good uh, point. it's pretty yeah. amazing, yeah. Uh, we take for granted that Mira had to come up with uh, different ways to depict Guts kicking ass. <laughs> yeah, well, the, you know, there's a lot of them. So. There's also the weird perspective shot where you see him holding the Dragon Slayer up, and it looks like it's bending on into infinity. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's holding it up in the air, like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm mean, sure it was a conscious decision, you know? Like, I have to show it bending this time. Uh, I'm assuming because it's in motion, or is it the perspective? I don't really know what's happening <laughs> it's, with that. Yeah, it's a way to depict the dynamism of it. It's the same in the, is that the full page shot of him uh, in black and white you know as yeah. you see uh, right. it's yeah it, it's it's bended to show that it's uh, in, in motion it's a common mm-hmm. common thing uh. and also oh, it's pretty pretty cool that two page spread where he's just cutting through them and we noted the ones running away I just love how cool and detached he looks in that shot he just looks like a force of nature and it also reminds me of like shots we see of Zod like cutting through soldiers, whether it you know oh, yeah. was in Volume Seventeen or you know Kushin's, you know he just he it's like he's not even paying attention to what the trolls are doing. He is just like swimming through their bodies, you know, and they're in his wake. So it's taking taking care of business. Yeah, you know he he looks like the monster, and they're like the scared you know villagers running away. <laughs> Why it's uh... the tables have turned? Yes. It actually shows a bit in his self-reflection, where he's uh, he's letting loose. Yeah, his, his ferocity. Uh, yeah, it's like he's relaxing almost uh, because he's got no one to protect now, so he can just let it go, let it all, uh, you know, uh, indulge himself. He, yeah, and exactly. maybe that's actually what uh, what attracts our friend here in the end. She says it's she was watching and she knew he would come. Oh yeah, she's watching all the time. I don't think it's coincidence that it was that pa- passion that drew her that moment. Like the trolls were just raping these women and yeah. eating children. And that's obviously, I mean, that's Slan's... Uh, Bread and butter. <laughs> so territory. So, yeah, that's yeah. also why, the same way that we see her forming out of smoke uh, in the heretic's cave um, during the conviction arc. Uh, that it makes sense for her to appear in, in the wherever there's the cave, the heavy violent hedonism. That's where she's gonna, <laughs> gonna yep, make exactly. her appearance. Well, and this speaking of which, it's also this is like one of the great moments in you know if you jumped to the biggest conclusion possible. You were right. <laughs> you know, it's like if you <laughs> oh, if yeah. you were going, you know, let's let's be calm. It's probably just some tentacle creature, you know, coming out of the water. Because it even it doesn't. That was, even, that was my guess. Well, that would be the that would be the more prudent, you know. Let's be conservative here, guess. But you know, Skull yeah. Knight, of course, we know he's coming. So it could still be a monster, but everything was there to sort of be like. Oh my god! I bet that slants hair, even though it, oh, you know, right. yeah. Anybody who called that, I would, I would, I would give them props because to me, it looks like the next evolution of the next like Cliffoth monster. Right, right. The it, that's boss. the thing. It's it's done deceptively enough where it yeah. could just be some weird tentacles coming out. Now that is, I guess, what slants hair would look like underwater. <laughs> but you yeah. know, it, it's done subtly enough where it's like, oh yeah, it could be a couple of different things. It could it could go either way yeah. for sure. It is interesting, though, because you get that 
I mean, you can feel, maybe it's easy for me to say reading it now, but you can feel that things are escalating. Yeah. Uh, where you've got that shot of Shuriken Isidro, you know, they've got these trolls, then the Skull Knight comes, you can tell it's him, and he just, like, he kills them instantly. It's also a fun way to show that while Guts is a monster, the Skull Knight is, uh, like, a step above, where he, like, he doesn't even slow him down. He kills them, he kills plenty <laughs> yeah, of them. Yeah, it's like a flyby. Yeah, it's yeah. just, he does not even stop him. And, and then you see, uh, I really like the way uh, Mira depicted the, uh, the hair, you know, where it, it, she's rising up. It's not just, uh, it's interesting just to show that she's rising up from deep that down. She, that she's complete under there already and that she's just going to hit the surface and then start forming in, you know, this world. I don't world. think that's what happens, though. Like, I, I think what we're seeing, in the, the shadow is actually non-physical because... Yeah, see yeah, that's that's her shape. in the other, you know, right? Yeah, Precisely. yeah, she's, that's her preform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's rising from like the depths of the astral world, yeah. right? She's not like the puddle of blood is probably just uh, two inches deep, but she's she's coming. Yeah, as it's like a, the ocean, you know, ethereal entity and taking form. But still, the way it's depicted, uh, you know, with that, like you said, girl, the ripple. You see that one. Blip thing uh, that ripples across as she 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 comes. It's a yeah, it's pretty cool. I know it's not, but I can't stop but think about the abyss because that's exactly the only image we get of the abyss kind of thing is that drop of uh, Crypto's tear in the in the eclipse scene right before he talks to the idea of evil is that same ripple kind of effect. Sure. Um, a, a couple other things. I really like Puck's line when Isidro throws his grenade. Uh, Puck says, I'm the best at using Dropy. As if, you know, Puck's really, the, you know, Asidro is a weapon that he uses against things. He's and, piloting. Yeah, he's exactly. a metal gear for Puck. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wondered about the dichotomy between Farnese uh, talking about how having something to protect is what kept her alive in this scenario. And Guts, meanwhile, is reminiscing about how it's nice not to have something to protect because he can finally cut loose. Like, that feels very intentional to oh, me. Oh, that's really interesting. Mm. With Skull Knight coming, you know, we don't know for sure it's Skull Knight as if there's nobody else it could be with that. A little, little bit frame. of a wink and a nod, well, right? It's mm. pretty obvious, though. Yeah, pretty sure. It's obvious, but you're sort of like, oh, who could it be? <laughs> Maybe <laughs> it's like, Lacus? <laughs> yeah, the, the way that he slices the troll heads, it's it's like surgically comical. Like he yeah. slices them all exactly the same well, way. Which becomes, uh, I think. After the fact, becomes even more of a signature when we see him at Flora's mansion mm-hmm. slicing up apostles. It's like he's at the deli. <laughs> We've t- talked about Salon's appearance a lot in this episode, but like I have a lot more to say about that once she actually appears. So I'll, I'll have more to say in the next oh boy. episode about that stuff. There is so much to say about. Oh it. yeah, and the next episode is uh, two nineteen. The the lovingly titled uh, by Dark Horse, Vicinity of the Netherworld, or you can call it like the border of hell, one or the other. <laughs> one has it's a better actually... ring. One might be more accurate or not. That I know border to hell has a better ring to it. So um, probably the more accurate way to word it would be Banks of the Underworld. Uh, uh, kind of a Greek mythology. Like, like the shores uh, of the Underworld. Yeah, exactly. Shore, bank, uh, edge. Basically, the edge of a body of water. Mm. So Which uh, is perfect for yeah, what, what Slan's actually doing. Exactly. So the episode starts. We get This is our first next big clue 
that, you know, it's really happening, it's not just another tentacle monster, is that Guts' brand, even with the, you know, the tattoo on it, the ink, you know, to protect him, and sort of uh, ward off evil, it just starts gushing blood, and he immediately notes the feeling. You see the Behirit start coming together, so, you know, all the signs are there. You know, we cut back, we see the same thing is happening to Casca, and Shirke is, you know, very alarmed. Not only that, we see this sort of, like, Similar to sort of Fantasia, when it, you know, comes along, we see that the ode of, yeah. you know, everything is changing. Shirke, you know, can feel it. You see her falling, like, almost in this abyss. She's, like, you know, in a flop sweat. You know, something, you know, really bad is happening, and she has no idea. She tries reaching out to Guts, who... There's two shots like this in the episode. He has this great, like, the face of madness and fear. Like, he's staring and watching, you know, what's happening. He doesn't fully comprehend it yet, I don't think. The Behirit's fully formed, he's pleading, and we see, coming together, the troll entrails. And this, in a signature moment, tits first. <laughs> Slan, you know, <laughs> comes forming out of them. And, you know, when you see her face, it isn't fully formed yet. It's sort of this great, like, monstrous, it's like a doll. And then, you know, we see the full two-page spread, full sort of body shot of her, her upper torso... You know, it's clearly her, and, you know, it's almost... The artwork is great because she looks almost like... It's almost mocking and teasing as she comes into existence. We get another shot of Gut's face, you know, with that... You know, just a look of terror as she, you know, begins, you know, talking about, you know, sort of the disgustingness of this form she's taking. And he immediately, you know, goes into a wild attack, and that's when her wings appear and knock him down back into the water. He comes gushing up for air and she's immediately embracing him you know and she's in you know it, this communicates a lot she's in total control of the situation despite guts you know uh displayed prowess she you know says how she's missed him but she's been watching him all along and basically implores him to let loose you know all of his emotions his anger his fear and uh and Shirke can feel this in Guts' mind, you know, like an explosion, she describes it. And she's wondering what's going on, you know, something terrible is happening, and she's going to seal, basically, uh, the pathway to Cliphoth with a spell, you know, and they're all relying on Guts to basically, you know, she's called out to him to get out of there, you know, because they've got to stop the trolls and whatever else from coming out there. And when we cut back to uh, Slan and Guts, he's just completely at her mercy, She's, you know, holding, she picks him up, holds him up in the air, strips off his clothes, and basically, yeah, keeps imploring him to defy her, you know, and uses a lot of uh, sexually charged uh, language, basically, to penetrate her with that big thing of yours. I assume she's talking about the Dragon Slayer. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and then she points out or make a sacrifice, you know, as we see the fully formed uh, Behirat. And that's when Skull Knight shows up, uses the skull orang that he ripped off of his, you know, uh, shoulder there, or his neck, and uh, the final shot is confirming that it was, in fact, Skull Knight uh, coming to save the day. Or at least try to kill Slan. So, very, mm. very cool episode. I remember, I believe I was in Georgia when this episode came out. I remember where I was. That's how big this episode was. I had actually just met uh, Walter, and I don't know if you remember that. So this was 2002. Mm-hmm. And it was just amazing. It was just like wow, you know, when this when this came out. I didn't know you were still visiting. That's yeah, crazy. I, I think I was at UGA at the time. Just okay, you know, just as a personal aside, like yeah, I remember specifically. I was probably using UGA's internet 
Like, yeah. to look at this episode and go, oh, my God. You know? I do remember yeah. throughout this whole sequence, we were, like, call- physically calling each other when an episode landed to, like, have many podcasts like this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, pre-podcast. We just weren't recording yeah. it. Yep. Yep. Anyway, yeah. Um, the, the fact that a god hand appears now, you know, after so much buildup and so much time, you know, Mira is going for it. You know, there actually is a face-off between Guts and a god hand member. Uh, pretty incredible that he actually, you know, cr- crosses that line. Also, I just wanted to say her form, uh, very uh, unique. You know, this kind of intestines uh, made into human or a human-like form. It's this, and it, the fact that she is, you know, otherwise beautiful. So it's this grotesque beauty uh, is her whole character design. And if you look too close, you want to vomit, but you want to look anyway. That kind of thing is happening here. Um, I do think it's interesting that when she rises, it's very much like the way that she's depicted when she rises from the eclipse, uh, kind of was supernaturally rising like that. Uh, it looks very much like she's just a massive mountain rising like she did to the eclipse as well, even though it's not the case. Yeah, there's a parallel between the two for sure. Mm-hmm. I also think it's interesting. This is this is Guts' big shot. You know, this is his this is his mission is to destroy the God Hand members, and this is it. She's right in front of him. He's going to go for it. He's going to swing, but his best is not even close to good enough yet. You know, she, he has Slon's plaything until SK arrives and gives him a moment to attack for real. Well, what's interesting uh, is her wings. Uh, you know, seem to be made out of better stuff than the rest of her. Like, maybe they're formed with the blood, or I don't know. Mm-hmm. But they're, you know, they're clearly they're darker, and they, yeah, they immediately uh, sort of dispatch him in the middle of his attack. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is she can she manifests them pretty much instantaneously. Yeah, when she needs to, and yeah. uh, like you said, she. You say she tears off his clothes, but it's not just that. She destroys his armor in, like, just a snap. Yeah. No no sweat. It's, uh, it's nothing to her, which is... I mean, that's also interesting because that's why he needs uh, the Brexit armor. Because what Godum made for him was completely annihilated uh, by Slan in this case. And, of course, I mean, if you think back to uh, the Black Souls of Narc, uh, when he actually confronts Femto... He gets slammed to a pillar and his armor also comes off because he gets slammed so strongly. The armor, you know, prevents, uh, his uh, torso from being smashed, but it's also uh, damaged in the process. So it also shows that just any random armor is not going to be able to cut it against these, uh, super powerful beings. It's also of note that she's actually sitting down during that entire sequence when he attacks her and she just like kicks his ass. She's not even, she hasn't even stood up yet. <laughs> like, yeah. She's lounging. Yeah. Yeah. The, the way this scene goes on is interesting. She really is inciting him to do something about it and basically put his rage to use because, you know, obviously he can't damage her. Uh, it's like, what is, what does she actually want? Does she actually want him to? Become an apostle in this moment, even though that's... Is that even in the cards? You know, it's a, no, it's a strange man. thing for her to incite that, I think. Well, she... No, I, I think it makes perfect sense. And and it also uh, feeds into what she tells us later on. She's teasing him. Yeah, she's taunting uh, him and trying to get she, him she, worked up even more. Yeah. She she embodies uh, the temptress in, in every way. And so she appears... What's interesting, like you said, Walter, is he jumps... He doesn't wait for her to fully appear. She's still in the process of manifesting herself. 
as he jumps and tries to cut her down right away, but it's not fast enough because she's already powerful. And yeah, she's she's taunting him. She's saying, well, go ahead, just pierce me, penetrate me. Or maybe do you want to do a sacrifice, which is also kind of what she was saying in the Black Swordsman arc. And mm-hmm. and we know it's not in the cards. There's nothing. He doesn't have anything to sacrifice at hand. And yeah, she knows uh, it's not in the cards either. You know, it's just uh, yeah. So she's just. I think she's just enjoying uh, all of his feelings of frustration, fear, rage. Uh, and again, it's what she says. Um, and and I feel like as a member of the God Hands, that, that's the kind of stuff she feeds on. She she likes that stuff. Uh, she's cultivating the, the emotions. Yeah, it's delicious to her, and and there's a very sadistic aspect to it. Yeah, this Uh, whole thing is like, she's like, I mean, for lack of a more, uh, you know, to put it bluntly, she's getting off on all this, you know, when she knocks him down, and he's like, basically in her lap, and she's just sitting there like, she's, she's got this playful smile, like, oh, this is wonderful, (laughs) you know, and then she picks him up, and there's also this weird, like, when Skull Knight cuts him half down, she's sort of, it's almost like a gentle embracing of his head she like catches him yeah so this whole thing is like a weird a weird sort of seduction but you know the yeah rather than being sexual perfectly summarizes her character yeah it's it's all about violence and you know like Mm. awful emotion you know and she treats him as uh, at the same time a child yeah a potential lover someone she she's seducing and someone she's uh, she's play, gonna eat. Toying, <laughs> yeah, toying with, and she can dispatch at any time. So she's got. It's kind of like the um, uh, the full aspect of what evil woman would be. Like if you try to define it, she basically like every every uh, check mark. It's pretty yeah. hot. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, another See, thing I wanted to point out is that this episode for me really uh, gives a sense of smell, a sense <laughs> of smell in the place you're at. Like, with other episodes, I'm not necessarily thinking about what does Flora's mansion smell like? But here, <laughs> I'm thinking about sand probably smells like doo-doo. No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I never really thought if, about the if smell. If Skull Knight was, uh, you know, not such a proper, you know, <laughs> man, he can make some <laughs> jokes, you know, when he comes in about how she stinks, but... You know. <laughs> Skull Knight's probably glad he doesn't have a nose, but yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I just think about like troll intestines, the blood. It's just like full of viscera. That whole area that they're in is just gross. Oh, I was trying to think of the awful pun, and it's like, okay, so she's made out of like troll, probably a lot of brain matter, Fifty Shades of Gray matter. I mean, you know. oh god, that's <laughs> <laughs> so what's going on. Here? Nice. <laughs> it's interesting that she she comments on how God's soul is at, at uh, its place in the Cliffhouse because it's a place of darkness uh, and that his rage and all his dark feelings uh, fit the place well. Uh, it's an interesting commentary on on his own self, where he's at, the place he's at. And of course, by that point, he's already started to veer off that path thanks to Puck and then to Casca and the Demon Baby and everybody else. But yeah, it's also a commentary that he was once on his well on his way to end up uh, yeah becoming a monster like those that populate uh, this kind of place. And of course, he'd be re- you know repulsed by that, and so it's another good way to taunt him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's, uh, just in the previous episode, he was getting in tune with that side of him that he has you know forsaken for so long, just indulging his darkest you know desires. Yeah, I don't know if it's really his darkest desires, but just letting his uh, 
Yeah, he's rage fly. He's uh, yeah. Like she, she says it in here. She's basically like cut loose. (laughs) You know, like she wants to see his best. There's a it's a line that Slon says that I think has confused a lot of readers uh, when she says that as the path unfolded, I knew that you'd come to my domain, Cliffoth. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about that because it's, it sounds like that she is the author of Cliffoth or the the sole ruler of Cliffoth, as if each of the God Hand have their own neighborhood. This is her this real is estate, her. you know. Uh, I don't think that's the case, though. I think it's actually a mistranslation. Uh, Azil, do you want to take it from there? Yeah, sure. Um, well, she doesn't actually just say that. She says, I knew you'd come to Cliffoth, uh, Cliffoth rather, and she says, because the way was left open. Um, so it's not, I mean, as the past unfolded, it's also a bit confusing. Uh, but yeah, the most important part here is that Dark Horse, for some reason, uh, added my domain. Uh, and that's not present in the Japanese. And I have no idea why they added that. They were probably trying to add some, you know, like contextualize it a little bit for readers, but it was, it just yeah, made well, it confusing. The thing yeah. is that it's confirmed in the next episode that it's not her, like, it's not a place where she dwells. Because, uh, when the Skull Knight, uh, comes and, and talks to her, she tells him she came to the Clifford because she wanted to meet Guts. So, and we see her arriving there. So it's not something, you know, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it's not her, her kind domain. of place, but it's not her place, per se. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, she she's got um, how to say she's attuned to that place. Yeah, the place is attuned to her. As we see, she compares it to a womb and so on. And, and I'll get into that in the next episode. But it's not a place she has uh, specific dominion over, and that she dwells in or anything like that. And actually, we do see uh, uh, her domain. I, I'm doing air quotes here. Mm-hmm. Um, when Fantasia comes to be. Uh, we see the, the blast of the astral world washing over the world, and uh, we see just bodies. Oh, <laughs> it's... Yeah, and we, and we see four uh, the four member of the God End, other than Femto, each in their own thing. So of course, Void is just a brain, uh, so that we keep the mystery. But Slan, we see her in a kind of uh, love tunnel where it's just bodies, uh, yeah, you know, being penetrated and penetrating and being penetrated through the other side. So Added and she's at the bottom yeah. of that. And that's kind of a thing. And well, I'll get into that in the next episode. But basically, uh, the God Hand member, each of them is associated with specific things, but it's not as material as uh, the Clifford would be. Uh, the Clifford is, while it's part of the astral world, it's still, you know, beings have shape. Uh, they, they've got trolls, even though they're astral beings, they, they stink, they, they bleed, they die, they shit. Um, and Slan, she's members of a good hand. They are deeper than that in the world. They are associated with mankind specifically, uh, first off, and in, in a more, how to say, conceptual way and less concrete way. So all of this to say that these words, my domain, are not present in the Japanese, uh, text. It was added by Dakors for no reason whatsoever and it should be ignored. Because, like you said, Walter, it does confuse people. They're like, oh, well, it's her domain. No, it's not her domain. And and Clifford is not just that place either. It's a territory within the astral world. What we see uh, in those episodes, in this volume, is a part of the Clifford uh, that gets uh, destroyed and, and sealed off in the process of battle. But, uh, yeah, it's a 
wider place than that. It's um, it's almost more like a country within the other world. It's a bit, it's a bit complicated. So, but what matters, what should be remembered is, Slan is not the queen of the Clifford. It's not uh, some place she created or anything like that. She doesn't have a throne room there. No, she came there to see guts. She's got an affinity with the place because there's all all kinds of rape and stuff and all things like that. Yep, um, that's it for me. All right. Well, I guess I'll take it from there. So next episode is Courtesan of the Uterine Sea. So I'm going to start by speaking of the episode title because it's a little complicated here. Uh, it refers to what the Skolinat calls Slan, and it's very difficult to translate into English. Uh, and Dark Horse, uh, what they did is a bit clumsy with it. Uh, Mura used an uncommon compound word uh, to call her prostitute. If it was a kanji that can by itself mean princess, like uh, Princess Charlotte, which is Charlotte Hime. But uh, that kanji has a multitude of uses. It can also be used in words describing sex workers or concubines or stuff like that, even in the modern day. So just translating it as uh, two separate words, like they did, as whore princess, it doesn't really make sense. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. Whore princess, what does it mean? No. So, um, Skullnight's just calling her a whore, basically, but he's using an unusual word for it. So, back in the day, uh, well, we chose courtesan for it on Skullnight.net because that was the best word for it in English. It's not perfect. It's not perfect translation, but there's no perfect translation. So, Courtesan it is. But whole princess doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, the other part of the word, harawada, refers to uh, the inside of the womb. Uh, it's composed of two kanji, once again, uh, one for womb, uh, the uterus, uh, and the other for sea, ocean, that kind of stuff. So literally, it would be uterine sea. But again, the idea here isn't to evoke the novel, naval life, and it's not Roderick on the seahorse. It's anything like that. It's what's inside the uterine, uh, the uterus. Uh, and additionally, there's a bit of a, a pun to it because uh, harawata, uh, pronounced closely but separately, it's wata, wada. Uh, it means innards. And, and she's formed out of a troll puree uh, in this case. So it's, it's kind of a, a joke on it. But basically, it's just a very complicated way to insult her uh, from the Skull Knight. So, yeah, moving on to the episode summary. Uh, Slant teases a skull knight about uh, interrupting a private moment between a, a man and a woman. Uh, he asks her if she's alone here, uh, if she came alone, and sh- she replies that uh, with one of the rare insights we get in the series uh, about the goddess business, uh, that no, she, she just came by herself to meet Gus, like I said earlier. Uh, he moves on to fight her, but she summons forth a bunch of augurs to hold him back. Meanwhile, Shuke is casting a spell and Isidro is in charge of protecting her and the, the uh, escapees. Uh, as trolls armed with stolen farm tools move to get her despite the protective circles she's laid down, Isidro interposes himself in a pretty cool uh, move. As he does, Shuke feels like she's slowly sinking into mud and she remembers Flo's words of warning about the danger posed by spirits of darkness. She comes face to face with one who's sitting alone in the darkness deep below the earth, that's the lord of the rotten roots. The Skull Knight cuts down ogres and trolls by the dozen, but more keep gushing forth. 
slanticism, explaining that because of the cliffhouse location at the border of the underworld, it's where bad spirits take on their astral forms. And she says that makes it a uterus of, uh, uterus of darkness where any number of such uh, children doing air quotes here can be spewed like worms. While she blabbers away, Skullnight tells Guts that now is his chance and her hero fires his cannon right into her womb, fittingly. While at first surprise, she seems delighted. We cut to Isidro, who's managed to dispatch the armed trolls, but is now faced with some sort of chieftain. Uh, he's bigger and seemingly smarter than the rest. He's got a crossbow, he's got a battle axe, a suit of armor, and even a necklace made of human skulls. Uh, Isidro prepares to blow him up with a grenade, but the big guy grabs a small troll to use as a shield, leaving him no choice but to move. He hesitates, reminded of his previous failure in the temple, but as the troll lines up his shot, Isidro is complete to action. He dashes forward, throws a grenade, does a jump roll to dodge the crossbow bolt, manages to get under the axe and delivers a deep cut to the troll's side. He immediately turns around and digs his fire dagger deep inside the wound, putting the troll on fire. We cut back to Guts and Slan, who's enjoying the burning sensation but wants more. Guts is aghast as he sees the wound close up as if it's nothing, but the Skull Knight urges him on. He tells him that with his sword, it can be done, as he's been forged in his battles against thousands of evil beings. And the episode ends as Guts pierces through her. So, um, pretty dense, lots of stuff. Uh, I've already said a lot in the summary, so I won't go back on everything. Uh, there's an interesting quote uh, by Flora. Uh, she says that uh, when you look into darkness, darkness also looks back into you, uh, which is, uh, of course, from Nietzsche. So that's an interesting uh, little uh, reference by Mira here. And she also warns Shiroke that when the user, uh, magic user, can't handle the power of the spirit as a man, it's possible that the user ends up getting consumed themselves. So it's also, uh, I mean, we got a first demonstration of Shuki's summoning power with the Lady of the Death, but here uh, we kind of step on the gas as she's summoning another being that's more dangerous and poses a danger not just to the people surrounding her, but to herself as well, uh, if she loses control. So that, that's interesting. And, and that, of course, takes place as the uh, stakes are super high with uh, Guts and Slan. Um, one last part is, uh, about, um, about, uh, what, uh, Slan tells uh, Skull Knight about the other members of the God Hand. Like I said, uh, in the summary, it's one of the very rare insights we get into their business. What she says is, uh, you know it, right? That the appearance of the fifth one will lead to this. The wars have already started to merge. As for what the others are up to, I don't really care. They're probably all dissolved into their favorite Sephira and are floating around without a form. So what's interesting here is the word Sephira. What is a Sephira? Well, it's originally a term from the Kabbalah. Its meaning in Hebrew is enumeration, and it traditionally refers to 10 metaphysical attributes that God can manifest himself through. Um, that's things like knowledge, compassion, determination, and so on. And the original meaning of the word cliffhot is also uh, the opposite of that in the Kabbalah. It's impure attributes that are uh, far from God. But Mura here, he uses uh, two words without much regard for their original meanings. Uh, the Clifford is just a territory of darkness, uh, part of which we see in this volume. And as for Sephira, that Slan uh, mentions, well, uh, the kanji on which that name is applied means uh, bureau or department. 
like in a company. So it's a very general word, and I feel that Mura used it so as not to give the term uh, too much of a specific connotation, uh, like he would have if he used uh, essence or something like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, that also tell us much, but uh, I feel like that can relate to what I said earlier and what we see much later uh, during uh, the, the advent of Fantasia, which is that the members of the God Hand are, are tied with specific um, concepts uh, related to mankind. So, for example, for Conrad, it would be uh, disease, illness, death, misery. For Slan, it's uh, lechery, uh, pain, sadomasochism, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, for Femto, ambition and ruthlessness and so on. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's an interesting See, We never get uh, more than that on the, on the topic, so that's why I felt like uh, it was uh, important to to go a little in detail on it. It's funny, Skullnard also is like, okay, t- the time for talk has ended. It's like, no! <laughs> Keep letting talk! <laughs> <laughs> why does he do this? <laughs> Alright, you've got nothing to say, I'll just, I'll just dispatch you. <laughs> As I was just thinking about what you said before about how uh, lore is often uh, interspersed into really high action scenes, and I guess this is a good example of that. Yeah, for sure. It's just... What's crazy is that uh, Emura almost always does this. <laughs> They're just, it's just like five sentences they exchange before battle. Just, it's like on a single page. But it's, uh, it's like the most insight we ever get into <laughs> what the, you know, members of the God and do. So it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. It, it tells us that <laughs> they can, they can be without form. And that's also, that's something the Sconite also told us before in the conviction arc that they can exist. Uh, wherever human misery is, wherever bad things uh, congregate. So that reinforces that. She tells, uh, she gives us a full uh, warning about uh, what, what's to come with Griffiths. It's, uh, and all of that is condensed into this uh, very small uh, amount of uh, lines. And Skull Knight's reaction is he's just already pulling his sword out from, like, like behind his shield. Like, all right, how about I just cut your head off then? <laughs> he just wanted to know, were you alone, basically? Yeah. And she says, I came up, and then, well, then, well, then you're going to die. That's basically it. I love Slan's reaction here to Skull Knight's arrival. You know, she's basically making fun of him, saying that she speaks you know, you in double entendres. Like, the oh whole yeah, time. there's so much. It's, it's, <laughs> she yeah. never drops uh, it. The entendre that she intends here is hilarious. Uh, it's one should not meddle with the clandestine affairs of man and woman. Or will you be joining us, Your Majesty? <laughs> is what she says. Yeah. Or is this going to become a threesome, Skull Knight? You know. <laughs> And he's just, obviously, it just doesn't work on him. Uh, so he comes back with his own smart retort. Uh, Azil already explained it way better than I would ever explain yeah, it. Yeah, well, we'd uh, only muddy it back up. <laughs> I just, he's both calling her, a, you know, a regal uh, whore and also a prostitute of intestines. Uh, just nailed it. Zing. Uh, <laughs> in a way that'll never make sense in English. It would never make sense in a rap battle, but it makes sense in Japanese. And then yeah. when he starts whipping out his sword, she's like, oh, so impatient, you know, men. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, it's pretty good because it. Uh, I think it further defines both their characters. Yeah, him as a kind of humorless. I mean, it's also notable that she calls him uh, king. Basically, she calls him mm-hmm. Osama. So that Darko translates it as Your Majesty, which is, I mean, it's fine, but uh, the meaning of it is that he's a he's a king or mm-hmm. a ruler, that kind of stuff. So it also 
uh, well, an indication that he was uh, once Geyseric. And she's obviously teasing him about that and so on. And, uh, and yeah, he reacts. She's very, she's still in that role of uh, teasing, uh, playing the seduction card. And he's a very down to business guy that's just there to kill the god hand and that's all he care about. So yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty nice. I like to change. imagine that when she says that at first, you know, when he'd be joining us, that in his mind, he's like, there's just a split second where he's like, Ew. <laughs> and, then he, and then he calls her, you know, <laughs> names. <laughs> There's some uh, good stuff with Puck and Isidro here. I like how Farnese says that as a troll approaching with a farm tool and Puck's reaction isn't, oh, no. It's more like, oh, trolls can farm too? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, of course, Isidro has a really big moment to shine here when he's there to protect Shirke. Uh, I had talked about it in the last volume about... You know, Mira's way of doing the spell casting is that the caster uh, is vulnerable for the moment that they're doing the summon, whatever. It's like a contract. Right. Yeah, exactly. As they're established in the contract, they're vulnerable. They can't be, uh, they can be easily be attached. So Isidro is the one that is in front of there and protecting her. Uh, and he has a big moment where this boss troll appears and he actually has this big final showdown with him where he does a really kind of complex move. You know, tosses his grenade. While it's exploding, he immediately goes in for the lunge, but then the crossbow bolt, so he has to dodge roll and then do a double strike. It's pretty impressive. Well, it's also, it's a really cool moment for visual storytelling and for depicting somebody almost beyond their control. You know, he's a little bit, you know, over his skis here where you see his eyes, you know, the air, you know, he's going to get shot with a crossbow and he's sort of, you, the way they, Mira shows his eyes, it's almost like he's, He's moving because he has to, but before he even is fully realized what he has to do. And it just sort of yeah. shows somebody, you know, all, you know, it's when your training and your skills all come into effect when you need Improvising. It. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, he pulls it off. And then you get this moment, too, at the bottom of the next page where he's, you know, analyzing in real time. You know, he's got to go faster. He's got to get lower. And it's just a really, it's a great depiction in general of just showing someone pulling off, you know, for the first time, like an athletic feat that they need to do that they've been training for, or, you know, using all their skills and seeing it come together when they're not even, unlike Guts, he's not like, you know, doing it, you know, reflexively without thinking. He's got to like, you know, step up and make this happen and he pulls it off. That's a really cool point. I, I actually really like this scene because uh, Isidro is sweating his ass off the whole yeah. time. And you can really get the sense that he doesn't feel like he's ready, but he's doing it anyway. Yeah, that's what and I get I from like his eyes so on that first page. That It's sort of like, you know, it's go time and he's like his body is moving while he's still trying to catch up mentally. And, you know, exactly, yeah. exactly. I thought that was so cool. Yeah, and he was he's also to do. down to his last grenade, too. So it's, it's like he's, yeah. his back is really against the wall. And he was able to do the move he's been, he would try to do in Enoch and has tried to do for a while, actually. The, the Casca special. <laughs> you get him yeah. right under yeah. the armpit, they're done. Even <laughs> the spinning thing, where yep. he spins around with the weight of the sword and finishes him off with a dagger. My personal relation to this is it's like, well, there's two. It's like the physical aspect of it I can relate to, like, in, like, playing basketball or something. But the literal part of what he's doing is this is basically, like, when you figure out Dark Souls, he, like, rolls through the attack, <laughs> does a counter, and then gets an extra hit in at the end that finishes him off. So mm. it's the proper form. 
You roll towards the enemy and attack their feet over and over. That's the Dark Souls method. <laughs> you get, get sort of under them and just hit their toes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we we discussed it a little bit in the previous uh, episodes, but um, I wanted to talk about Guts uh, and the Dragon Slayer. The fact that Skull Knight explains the Dragon Slayer has this additional property that can basically cause astral wounds because of his travels as the Black Swords and because of all the different things that he's fought, the supernatural things that he's fought. You know, the sword is now changed, just like Guts himself is changed, uh, is between worlds uh, as the Black Swordsman. I always liked that. I thought it was very poetic that Guts and his sword are kind of in tuned in the same way. They also cross worlds together. Well, it's also, I mean, it's not described as uh, precisely as you put it, uh, too. It's just, he tells him basically he's been forged by all the monsters he's killed, but without going over specifically what it's done to it. Uh, we, we see that he's got that kind of dark shadows that Shuki notices, but we never get, uh, it's another case where we never get an exact explanation of, of what happened to it, except that now it can uh, deal damage to astral beings. So that's also uh, another interesting uh, thing Mira does, is he doesn't tell you exactly what's going on, just, well, it's like this because of this, but we don't get like a precise uh, equation or anything like that. Yeah, I wasn't saying I had it precisely. I'm just saying it can now damage physical and astral, just like Guts himself straddles the astral and physical worlds. That's mm. it. Is that wrong? Well, I think, uh, I mean, it's not wrong per se. It's just uh, Guts, he's in the interstice because of uh, the brand versus the sword went through another process. So I just wanted to uh, uh, underline that uh, it's two different ways you know what i mean we don't know exactly uh it's not like the sword is just in the interstice that's not what he's explained to us it's not just well now the sword is in the interstice like you No, so i'm not can, saying uh, it's in the inter- i'm saying that thematically like guts it sure can, is in both worlds effectively because it can strike both physically and astrally no i was just thinking how like now it's like the lady slayer <laughs> <laughs> yeah, penetrates. And there sure. we go, levity added. So <laughs> like she's quite and she's quite excited about the cannon shot. I mean, that gets her really excited. <laughs> yeah, she, uh, her whole abdomen got blown apart. Well, if you thought she was excited about that, next episode yeah. with the dragon slayer running through her, <laughs> she's really happy. Yeah. I mean, you gotta you gotta keep things unpredictable in the bedroom. Yeah, you can't just do the same stuff. So I guess it's it. true. It's interesting. She's having a great uh, time. Uh, I, I do like that uh, that shot of uh, Gus with the cannon. Uh, it had been a while since we saw him pull the old uh, thread trick. Uh, you know, thread in the mouth. Mm-hmm. All right. So well, it's also it's interesting. Skull Knight is aware before Slan that Guts is conscience. Then presumably here because he's saying, you know, he basically gives him the signal like, "Hey, man, <laughs> time to make your move." And that's when she's like, "Huh?" Yeah. I wonder if this is the first time she's been surprised in a long time. <laughs> well, I mean, it just, this is also one of those things where, I mean, think it, you know, thinking too deep about Berserk, where it's like, you know, Skull Knight and Guts are warriors. Slan isn't necessarily kind of like wild, you know, he was, you know, he's not the warrior on the level of Zod, you know, or he was, what was the example? It was basically like he was just fighting with reflexes versus yeah, someone who's actually skilled and practiced. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. His muscles were reacting. Like, yeah, she's like not necessarily problems. as aware of, you know, uh, her vulnerability. And why would she need to be? Because she, you know, is usually invulnerable. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. 
there's also a case uh, to be made for the fact she basically she's at no risk. Yeah, she's not so, she's not really paying attention. <laughs> yeah, she, she's not paying attention because she doesn't need to, right? Is that's also a case where she's like, yeah, well, like she's surprised he uh, shoots her in the in in the belly, but. Uh, in the end, like we say, it's, uh, she's delighted by it. So yeah. it's, uh, I mean, it's a fun surprise. It's a win-win. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. a, a proxy body for her anyway. Yeah. yeah. The the shot, though, where the cannon actually fires, the really magnificent page all around from the massive sound effect, the godome sound it makes, and then framing her shot, her reaction and smile versus Yeah, that the just bottom, that like smile. Like I love how great. sparsely detailed that shot is because of the yeah. light. It's a yeah, great, even, great, the, great even the paneling is great. I mean I like the little shot of the just the cannon opening, you know, the hand falling down, uh that sound effects that it's mm-hmm. opening. Just small things that that big one of uh, firing her face as she's delighted and guts as he's uh, greeting his teeth. Uh, yeah, pretty, pretty cool. Just the way it's, uh, it's arranged, like you said, with a huge uh, sound effect on top. Yep. Beautiful. A less uh, talented uh, artist would not also show Guts' reaction, because this is a rare moment of triumph for him over a superior being like Salon, you know? He gets mm-hmm. to have that shot in. Good for him. Get that smile. So, yeah, this is a, I could probably, honestly, talk about every page of this episode. <sighs> For a couple hours, uh, once we get into volumes 24, 25, 26 and on, like I, these are volumes that I've read countless times over the years. You know, it's the earlier ones and even the later ones where I've spent less page by page time with them. But this is like the meat of my rereads are, are, are scenes like this and pages like this. So got a lot of love for this whole section. Uh, but I guess I'll take it over for the next one, which is Companions. Um, let's see. So Guts finishes piercing Slan and she is overjoyed by it. Uh, at the same time, uh, she uh, dissolves it her is body. the no climax of the, the moment. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> she and gives she Guts kisses a, him, too. Yeah, she gives Guts a kiss and then she her body uh, dissolves or is no longer able to hold its form. Uh, likewise, the shape of the cliffhoth begins to dissolve and Skull Knight later explains it's because the, her, her forced advent and her departure uh basically her, it caused a disturbance in the area that is now collapsing at the same time shirke's um contract with the lord of rotting roots is complete and it is now here to lay waste to the trolls shirke leans over and has an evil grin as she says rot and then blows you know a mist or a fog over uh the trolls and they begin decomposing in a very uh, vivid way you can see their skin kind of melting from their bodies and their bones start falling apart uh, meanwhile, back in uh, the heart of the Cliffoth is Guts and Skull Knight are become trapped. Uh, Skull Knight has an exit strategy, and that is to test this new, uh, not new, test a sword technique that he intended to use against the God Hand. Uh, he swallows his sword uh, and pulls it out, and we have the Yobi Mizu no Zurugi. Uh, boy, where did we land on uh, translation for that one? I think we often just call it the Behirat Sword for, for uh, brevity. Um, yeah, well, you want me to go over it now? Or? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, the name of the technique, like you said in Japanese, is Yobi Mizu no Tsurugi. Uh, tsurugi means a sword with a double edge. Uh, ken can mean uh, any type of sword. Tsurugi specifically means with two edges. Uh, Yobi Mizu, it's a reference to what the berets are called earlier in the manga. 
uh, in volume 13 they're called Ikaie no Yobimizu, which roughly translates to drops of primed water leading to another world. The basic meaning of the word Yobimizu by itself would be to prime a pump, uh, you know, a water pump. Uh, so that's what it means in the dictionary. But Mura uses a different kanji in the name uh, with a yofurigana, which changes its meaning slightly. The end result is that there's no elegant way whatsoever to accurately translate it in English. Uh, so Dark Horse, they say, sort of actuation. Actuation is not, it's not too bad, but it's also not perfect, uh, because the word is supposed to convey the act of calling. Uh, with a lot of nuance in how it can be interpreted, like summoning, awakening, uh, even a reference to the Behrit's cry, maybe. And also, uh, it's supposed to have a direct connotation to water, which isn't the case here. So in the end, uh, given that it's meant to relate to Behrit's, uh, yeah, we've just been calling it the Behrit sword, because uh, there's just no good way to call that technique. Yeah, the it's a doozy. the specific callback to Yobi Mizu, which is what we heard back in Volume Thirteen when the idea of Ava was talking. Uh, I thought that was such a sorely lacking part of all the trans most of the translations that I've seen, because the the key here is that it is related to Behirits. Um So anyway, I often just call it Behirit Sword for brevity. Anyway, uh, it is able to traverse the layers of the world, and that's what Skull Knight uses here, where he makes one slash. Uh, and then things start collapsing inward on the on the Eclipoth. And then Skull Knight makes another slash after they see the Vortex, and they're able to evade the Vortex of Souls as it, it reaches for them. Uh, on the other side of things, the uh, Lord of Rotting Roots is still just devouring trolls, and now the trolls are, themselves are spewing this uh, fog of death uh, <laughs> throughout the, the Cliffoth. Uh, uh, sorry, Shirke is having trouble uh, con containing it any longer, so she has to stop. But it's enough. Uh, Gus emerges from the cave on the other side of it. Uh, all intact, no big deal. Uh, and Skull Knight explains that it was the power of the sword that made them get through it. But uh, he does not stick around for much more of an explanation. Gus says he owes Skull Knight another one. And they, uh, Shirke expresses that she's... Uh, is almost word. She says that night. Uh, but that's all she says. But the implication is that she either... She saw it. Either stuck out to her or is familiar to her in some way, perhaps. Uh, or sensed I don't know him. yet. Right. Sensed him in some way. Um, back to Enoch. We have this very quick flash forward uh, back to the, the journey back. But Cliffoth has now vanished uh, because of everything that happened, everything they did together. Uh, probably a combination of Slan's departure and the way that it collapsed Skull Knight's intervention and everything with the Lord of Rotting Roots made that area uh, collapse. So no longer a portal to cliff off there. Uh, well, so it's a big victory for them. It looks Isidro, purified. Uh, Isidro asks her if it's what she did and she says, she says no. Right. So I think that implies uh, the Skull Knight uh, actions uh, produced that result. Okay. We have this moment where we see all the friend, all the, uh, the companions gathering on the bridge, finally reuniting after being away from this dangerous mission. Sir, Sir, Sir Pico's there, making sure Farnese is okay. And Guts reflects that he thought this time uh, for his life was gone, that he thought he used to think that he'd never be like that again, that he'd have companions again. And we see this brilliant two-page spread of the Falcons uh, with everyone you'd think would be there. Uh, interesting arrangement of, of, of the faces here where Carcass is slightly off to the side. Griffith is facing the opposite way. Casca is looking off distantly. thought that was interesting. Whereas the others are facing full frontal. 
And the episode ends with this shot of Guts looking at his own companions now in the modern times. What a disparity in how awesome the Hawks look in this shot. <laughs> and then on the, the bottom page, they're all sort of gathered together like, hey, what's up? You know, like. <laughs> I guess it's a reflection of how they've kind of taken their place in his mind. Well, and you in, know, yeah, and in the minds yeah. of the readers, too. This is very meta That's in true. a sense where it's like the Hawk, yeah. you know, the, the Falcon's larger than life, you know. So, yeah, I mean, and it's really cool. I really like the shot of Griffith, you know, in the distance with his back turned to them. It's all so thematically perfect. Mm. True. Yeah, there's a lot visually happening here. I mean, the fact that the vortex comes in here as well, it's terrifying that it's in such close proximity that they're crawling out to grab guts, you know, all just like it was in Volume 3. But it's also that uh, Skull Knight's in control of it. Um, Yeah, the... Yobi Mizuno's Rugi, the form it takes, I, I, I just love, if you're familiar with the design of Skull Knight's sword, what emerges from his mouth is fascinating because the thorns are like super enhanced. Even the rose petals at the base of the sword are larger than, or look more realistic and larger than they were. Yeah, like they've come it's, to life. Yeah, it's like, it's like they mutated in some way uh, as a result of their, you know, whatever happened inside of his body. There's also like a flower coming out of the, the bottom half where his hand is holding it. There's like an actual rose there. I think that's there in the normal sword, though. But I mean, it just seems like it looks... Oh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. it's larger than, than it is in reality. Yeah, everything's, you know, bigger and more pronounced uh, when it emerges. And all the Behirits' faces themselves are smiling, <laughs> gleeful, or confused. Yeah, they seem really happy. <laughs> um, it's also, I mean, it kind of goes without saying, but we may as well say it, that it's always been mysterious what Skull Knight does. Whenever he drops a Behirit in his mouth, we saw it in Volume 16 after Roshin, and we saw it uh, in the end of the Dreamcast game as well, and in Volume 19 or 20, I guess it's 20, when he visits the Behirid Apostles. Probably, uh, probably secretly evil, this guy. Yeah. Yeah, what's he doing with all these Behirids? Yeah. You know? and, um, Behirids I think are bad. Been... He's collected them, therefore, he must be bad. Mira gives us a definitive answer now. There's no mystery about it. We see what he does with it, you know. But I remember fan theories, and, and my own at the time was that it's his way of, you know, establishing what's actually happening on this, this uh, a God Hand and Apostle side of things. It's his way of, like, pointing himself in the right direction along his mission. But obviously this is more of a physical, you know, technique that he uses, uh, kind of like, kind of like a magic trick almost. It's a, it's actually, I feel like we almost, there's so much happening in these, these couple of episodes that it's like, I feel like I almost in my own head at the time undersold the significance of, Oh, well now Skull Knight can open up portals to the vortex or to other, you can like jump through reality, <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah. you know, and it's like at the end where it's like, oh, he actually, he sent the, you know, the Klipoth away. <laughs> like, you know, it's just, we, yeah. I kind of took it for granted when it's like, this is incredible. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, yeah, this is how you would defeat the God hand. But alas. Well, it's my favorite part about Yobi Mizuno Zurugi is something I never really even like considered is it's the fact that it's a combination of like, magic and uh, weaponry. Uh, it's it's not just that it's a magic spell that he casts, it's part of his sword. Well, and he's, he's turning, you know, their own power against them, too. Totally. It's like this, and it's those cool shots after he drops Guts off and that kind of ditches him, so like Guts looks like a crazy guy wandering out of nowhere. <laughs> like, you know, you see Skull Knight shrouded in darkness in the back with like the remnants of like the, the portal they came through. It's just like a slice and like three straight panels. And, the, of course, the coolest one is it shows Skull Knight holding the sword, and you just see his eyes glowing, and he's a silhouette. And it's like, 
You know, it's yeah. very old school, ominous, you know, powerful, but dark looking figure. It's a very cool mm. sequence. Yeah. And then by the time Guts thanks him, he's already gone. <laughs> like Batman. Yeah, and the sword itself, uh, I feel like it's uh, beyond just using their own stuff against them. The idea is that he would melt Beheret uh, within himself, his own very specific self, uh, since he's a... Uh, a spirit in a magic suit of armor, and then cover his sword with it and use that as a as a new kind of weapon. That that in itself is also pretty original, right? It's not just mm-hmm. activating his secret power or putting a rune on the sword or anything like that. It's a uh, yeah. It's, it's I very, feel like if special. he ran this past the council, like in they'd be like, "Hey, man, you're kind of messing with uh, some primordial," you know. <laughs> you need to go back to magic school because you're messing with forces you don't understand. It's like, hey, I don't figured tell it would work. King, though. <laughs> uh, the bodies that rise from the vortex, you know, kind of on on cue, uh, they reach for guts. But the question is, are they also reaching for Skull Knight? You know, I, I don't know. I, we, we can never know. If I mean, the no, translation I... of the Dark Horse one is like guts basically saying they'll get us. You know, basically they're, they're coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, yeah, the original um, doesn't doesn't say that specifically, but yeah, the idea is that uh, we can't we can't be quite sure if uh, if if they're trying to get the boss of them or just guts. It's uh, I, th- I think it's Mira made it on purpose very clearly to to leave that. Uh, so it doesn't confirm the, uh, anything. No. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, the. The distortion effect that happens whenever he uses Yobami's Nozurugi, it's definitely not the same thing, but it makes me think of what Void does in the Eclipse whenever he repels Skull Knight's attack. It opens a different a portal to a different space, and it redirects the attack in the same way. Yeah, there's a... Just, you, can, you can see, like, a potential progression here where, yeah, you know... Or something. Where Void uses that, and then Skull Knight... You know, was he already working on this before that, or was he like, oh, I need to... I need so I need to get me one of those, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe maybe it could slice through whatever void happened to throw up, you know, like a something that could penetrate any shield or barrier, you know, that, that was thrown up at the time. Of course, we saw how that worked out, yeah. Kanishka. Yeah, I think the idea. Uh, I mean, uh, the way it's portrayed, I imagine he's been gathering behards for a long, long time to do it. It's not something yeah. he just started doing after the eclipse. Uh, and, and yeah, it seems to be. It's interesting that he's reluctant to use it at that time, probably because he doesn't want to give up his hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he does, and maybe that even plays into uh, what what goes on on top of uh, Ganishka in Volume Thirty Four. It's hard to say, but uh, it's interesting that it's it's not a weapon he'd use in any context. Like for example, he fights against Zod uh, later on and he doesn't pull it out yeah. because he really keeps it for when he actually needs it and that's specifically uh, to deal with the good hand. And I think it's not... I mean, it's both, uh, like you said, because it could be a way to fight against Void's tricks uh, and also because, uh, I mean, it can probably cut through their body like, like butter, whereas uh, even Guts' weapon in this case... It didn't do... I managed to dispel Slan, send her back, but it didn't do any damage. Uh, whereas, you know, probably if he had hit her with a sword, uh, if Skonad had hit her with his sword uh, like that... Like, could, could this sword cut thing. her on every layer of her, you know, existence? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's what it does, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's why when he just slashes through the ground in the cliffhouse, it immediately opens a... 
uh, a gate to the to the vortex and uh, and swallows it all. So yeah, I always wondered about that. It's 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 very confusing to me the the sequence of events because there's so much happening because Slan is departing. And it's causing things to melt. So it's basically liquefying. It's, she's all destabilized everything. Yeah. And so then Skull Knight comes in with a big vacuum cleaner and, and mops <laughs> it all up. But the, the vacuum cleaner is the vortex. But who controls how big that vortex thing? That looks huge. Why it's not swallowing up the whole region yet? That part is just a little confusing to me. But it all gets neatly tied up by the end. Well, I think it uh, it basically swells up that whole place. I mean. It's kind of uh, like what we saw, I think, at that sacrifice. Isn't it kind of just, it sort of sucks, you know, it sort of pops out of existence, like it, you know, in implodes into itself in the end. That's that's what we've seen previously, but we don't get to see that here because Skull Knight and uh, Guts, you know. I mean, my question is, what, where, okay, so that slice opens up to the vortex. Does the, ne- the next slice, we only see, we see it opening as uh, Skull Knight's presumably striking at the bottom of that page. Where are they going through? Do, are they oh, just immediately appearing on the other side, or are they in some sort of other, you know, between dimension, you know, before they come out on that other side? You know, are they traveling? Are they, can Skull Knight, can he, like, surf the vortex if he wanted to, <laughs> you know, essentially? Yeah. That's a good question. I, I think they're meant to just appear right on the other side, and I think... Probably, uh, yeah, the Skull Knight can just do whatever he wants. He slashes and he decides where, where that opens up to. Right. Uh, yeah, because like that's, he, is that's he, If convenient. he thinks of Gut's friends, you know, and where he saw them last, yeah, can he just slice to that location? Yeah, probably something like that. I mean, that's what I'm guessing. Rather than having to travel through some special place. And Guts like makes that. no mention of it either, you know. I think at all, he. Pro- I mean, you know, he doesn't say like, yeah, that was weird in that other dimension <laughs> we traveled through. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's not, I don't think it's coincidental that the technique that he uses involves the layers between worlds and slicing between them. And, and also we were just introduced to the layers between worlds. So I, I think the uh, under the idea is that he is... There's a parallel layer behind the physical world, and he's just seamlessly weaving through that, and then it's just some kind of neutral neutral turf, and he spits out the other end of it, like a warp tunnel, basically. Yeah, I guess that's I guess that's all I have to say about this episode. Feels like we talked about a whole volume. Yeah, Shirke, yeah. Uh, not Shirke, but uh, Serpico on the bench for all this. I forgot. Yeah, uh, yeah that he got injured. During the Enoch Village fight, and so yeah, he's uh, he's basically their cheerleader when uh, they get back. Yeah, Farnese doesn't seem too happy. About <laughs> he's it, like grabbing her, and he's just she's just sort of like, "Hey, man, what I'm is- I'm totally cool now. I I kill trolls. Okay, I saw some shit. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. I don't get hurt and sit out. All right." <laughs> It's really yeah. like when you're in elementary school or middle school and all the kids go to the awesome field trip except for one kid who was sick and then he comes back to school the next day and everyone's like, that was awesome. Like, what did I, what yeah. did I miss? What, what the fuck happened? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I also like this to talk really briefly about the Falcons thing. We talked about it a little bit already, but I, I feel like it's me or I also just acknowledging how big the Falcons were to readers yeah. uh, by giving them this big moment to shine. And again... I didn't say this earlier, but I wanted to say that having Guts go in the cave of trolls and just cut loose, you would think a series like Berserk and a character like Guts and a weapon like the Dragon Slayer, that that would be a card that Miura would play 
all the time because it's just right there. It's right there in your deck. You may as well play that every single time because it's a big wow thing. He doesn't actually do that that often. I can think like three or four times in the series where Guts really cuts loose on that scale uh, against that many enemies. So he's very careful of it. And, and likewise, he's careful about how he plays uh, a card like the Falcons, knowing that tugging on those particular heartstrings can get old over time. So he's very careful about doing that. Well, this is yeah, it's really a very well deliberate sort of passing of the baton moment where it's like, hey, mm -hmm. this is how you feel about the Falcons. I need you to start. Feeling, you know, if you aren't already, you should be <laughs> feeling that way about these guys at the, on the next page. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Regarding the letting loose moment, I don't think they told the the guys who made the the Muso game about that. Like, hey, I didn't get that far. This in is that a one. rare occasion. Well, it's also it's also really cool just to see them in this like all of Mira's updated glory art-wise, where it's like, oh, wow, look at the details, you know, on them, mm. you know, they look great. That's always cool. But uh, I don't know if it's so much of a message to the readers. I think it's also meant to show, I mean, it goes without saying, but in, in many series, you'll have a guy die and he's just, you know, he's dead. He's written off. Uh, he doesn't show up again. And uh, Mura takes the time, obviously, like the death of the band of the Falcon, what happens to them, what happened to Casca. It's a big deal for him. He's traumatized by it. And uh, like you said, Walter, Mira doesn't play that card often. But I feel like at that time, it's proper to show him reflecting that he's gaining something again that he thought he would never have. Yeah. Uh, so just even just for the importance they have for the character, I, I think that's big. And of course, that gets developed later on. Uh, when they're in Britannis, uh, he talks about his family, that kind of stuff. They get closer and closer uh, as they bond together. And even when they we get to Elfelm, uh, when Casca compares uh, Sidro to Judo, and, and then she's get, she gets that flashback and, uh, and has a crisis, uh, I feel like that's also another case where he's very deliberately saying these characters, they have not forgotten their roots. Uh, they have not forgotten what happened. They're still at the core of their being, but they are trying to move on uh, without forgetting the past, but there's still a future for them. And and that's very, how to say, very complex and nuanced, but I think he pulls it off well. Well, again, it's very realistic. I mean, I can't, I, I don't know anyone who's been through that sort of trauma, but it must be, you know, you don't want to let go of the people that used to be important to you in life, even if you don't talk with them anymore. And as a reader, I really identified with that. Yeah, you would no, carry well, them I mean, with you. Um, yeah, I have a couple of friends who died uh, young. And uh, I mean, obviously it wasn't as traumatizing for me as it was for Guts, but uh, I do, I do think about them from time to time. So that's, uh, I feel like that's something that makes sense uh, to show yeah. in a story like that, especially in the context it took place in. I feel a little bad for Ricker in this shot because it's like, hey, everyone else in this is dead. I'm still alive. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> you, know, you, can, you can come visit me. I wanted to go along. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something we, we were looking forward to, right? Uh, that uh, yeah. we might not see now, but... Uh, yeah, so that's something well, that would have been pretty cool. Uh, so you're, really I'm making the parallels now when you started mentioning, you know, when Grail brought up, you know, losing people and you mentioned your friends. I also thought, well, this might as well be a big two-page spread now of Miura for me, you know, thinking yeah. about the series. Mm. <laughs> like, oh, damn, yeah. yeah. Bittersweet. Yep. Indeed. 
So that wraps up the whole Enoch Village mission that they had whenever they set off from Flora's Mansion. And so the next part of the manga, they return to Flora's Mansion uh, to enter a whole different sequence of events that uh, leads us into the future. So we'll be back with Volume 26, Part 2, and next month. All right. Mission accomplished. If you want to read more discussion about Berserk from us uh, and others, you should go check out SkullNight.net if you have not already. We have a massive community there. And as always, uh, thank you to everyone who has been supporting us, whether you are a podcast listener or a member of the forum. We do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash SKNet. So whether you're spending a few bucks a month or all the way up to the gold tier, thank you so much. You guys are awesome. I just called myself awesome because I'm also a gold subscriber because I like quality work. Uh, And if you are a gold subscriber... You've probably already been seeing all the posts Aziel has been making regularly. Quayla just finished a new translation of Skull Knight's first scene in Volume 9. That was awesome to see. And to be honest, it's what got me to upgrade my subscription all the way to gold so I can get that in my hands immediately. Uh, Another thing Aziel has been doing quietly without much fanfare is these Japanese lessons where he talks about the meaning of key kanji uh, phrases in Berserk like apostles, beasts of darkness, evil power. There's been a lot of activity around the Patreon the past two or three months. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, please do so and look at all the reward tiers to, to get access to those and our mini podcasts, which we produce once per month in addition to the show you're listening to right now. At the end of every episode, I'd like to thank our gold subscribers. Uh, this month, they include Spacey Louse, Dirtiest M, Giant Sword Mufasa, M, Walter, Rombad, Incantation, and Thomas Lambert. That's it for the show, guys. Tune in next week, next month, for uh, Volume 26, Part 2.